Happy Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. Jesus Christ died on a Friday. He rose on a Sunday. So Christians all around the world have traditionally gathered on a Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus died for sinners. He rose, on a, he rose from the dead on a Sunday, and so we have hope. So Christians celebrate the hope we have in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, we have good news for you. There is hope for you in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and we hope that you would learn more about him even today. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible, either on your phone or here, um, if you have a hard copy, take your Bible and open it to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. We're going through the Psalms, and this is our last, well, actually, no, next week is our last in the series on the Psalms that our brother Ben Bratcher will be preaching to you. But today we are in Psalm 15. I'll read the psalm and then we'll pray and begin to meditate on it together for, this, for these moments together. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. If you have a phone and you have different options on translations and you want to know exactly which translation I'm using, it's the CSB. Hear now the word of God. A psalm of David. Lord Yahweh, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue? Who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor? who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors the, those who fear the Lord, who keeps His word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now that your question that you pose here and the answer you give would go deep into our hearts, that we would acknowledge the truth in our hearts, that we would speak the truth in our hearts, that you would speak the truth into our hearts. We pray that you would give us repentance from sin, faith, fresh faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. I can't preach faithfully, and even if I did preach faithfully, I could not believe it, and we could not believe it and receive it with joy and soft hearts apart from you. So soften the callous on our hearts. Move us beyond familiarity from the contempt with the, with the familiar. We pray that you would give us a hunger and an expectation that you have brought us here for this moment on this Sunday to hear these words from this text for our good and for the relationships and situations you're calling us to. So speak to us powerfully from heaven now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. No one really wants to go to hell. Everyone wants to go to heaven. Even those who don't really want to go to heaven, if you have a choice between heaven and hell, those, everyone will choose heaven. Even if they don't want to go there, just to avoid hell, they will choose heaven. And as Christians, actually even for non-Christians, we want to know where we're going to go if there's a choice between the two. Even if you're not religious and you don't believe in an afterlife, you can't help but wonder, what happens after I die? What will happen to me? The Bible is clear that there is a judgment to come. There is a separation from God in judgment in, under the wrath of God in what the Bible eventually will call the lake of fire. And um, there's a place with God. If you're separated from your body now, you're with God in, in an intermediate heaven until Christ returns and brings the final new heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will dwell forever. That's what the Bible teaches. And we want to know, I mean, will I be granted entrance? Will, they, will, will I be let in the gates? Everyone wants to know, I mean, that's a good thing to know, to have confidence and assurance that I am going to get in when I, when I get to the gate. Even today, to come into this gathering, you were screened at the door, hopefully. Were you screened at the door? I hope all of you were screened at the door, and you had to answer a few questions. Who can enter into the gathering of Bethany Baptist Church on Sunday, June 28th? It's not the answer that you find in these, in these verses here. 
We ask different questions like, do you have a fever? Do you have flu-like symptoms? Have you been around anyone who's, had, who's tested positive with uh, the COVID-19 virus in the last 14 days? And we ask those types of questions to let you in. But the point is, we're asking the questions and we have the potential of screening you and saying, you, you may not enter. The name of the game is access. Will you have access into the gathering, the assembly, the dwelling place of God? Now, we may not know if we're going to heaven. If, we're not, if you're not a Christian, I can understand why you might not be sure what happens after you die. And if you are a Christian and you have a Bible, I can understand why even you sometimes aren't sure whether you're going to go to heaven. And you might even doubt, is this real or not? And if it is, I do think this is real, but I'm not sure if I'm real, if I'm really a Christian. And so we could struggle with our assurance in that way. Am I really saved? Will God let me in? The good news is we don't have to be clueless about this question. God doesn't always take away your doubt immediately. Sometimes He does. Sometimes He lets you wrestle with it, though, because He wants to do a deeper work in your soul. And I don't know where you're at with that and what God wants to do with you, but I know that Psalm 15 is certainly a passage that addresses this very question. So here's the key question. Look at verse 1 with me. I'll say it in my words, and then I'll let you read it in David's words. My word, the way I'd say it is, who gets to live with God in his home? That's my summary of the question. Who gets to live with God in his home? Let's see the way David phrased it here. Verse 1, Lord Yahweh, that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his personal name, Yahweh. That's when you see capital L-O-R-D. Lord Yahweh, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The tent is what? Anyone know what the tent is for David? Another name for the tent? The tabernacle. It was a tent that, that was made in, um, exit, at the end of Exodus when they, were left, when they were busted out of Egypt in redemption, the people of Israel. They were brought to Mount Sinai. They were given the Ten Commandments and instructions on how to build the tent. And when they built the tent, there was like chapter after chapter of instructions. At the very end, when they finally finished the tent, God's glory came down and dwelt within the tent and people saw the glory of God and they fell down on their faces and worshiped God. God moved back into earth, onto earth, at the very end of Exodus. If you know, God lived with man in the Garden of Eden. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, God kicked them out of his home and locked the gates. And God and humans never dwelt together in the same space until the end of Exodus when the tent is finally built and God moves back in to live with His people. It's a very climactic scene in the, in the story of Israel. And it shows us that God has always, from the beginning, had a passion to live with His people. Why did God create the world? He created the world to show His glory off so that people, His people would enjoy His glory in His place, in His home with Him forever. That's why God made the universe. And so this question, who can live with God, is, is the most relevant question that you can ask personally in regards to the Bible, right? Because this is God's mission, that He would live with His people in the Garden of Eden, in the tabernacle, eventually in the temple, in the promised land is God's place in the Old Testament. And here David's asking, who gets to live with God in His holy hill? Now, the holy hill here is Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. Eventually, the temple would be built there, and that's where God's dwelling place was. We don't have to get caught up in the technicalities of what David is saying at his time. He's basically just talking about living with God, because in David's time, the Ark of the Covenant was moved eventually to Jerusalem, but the tabernacle was still a few miles away from Jerusalem for a while. And so when David's asking this question, he's asking the general question about who gets to dwell with God where God lives. This is the exact opposite desire of Psalm 14.1. In Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, what? There's no God. I don't care about God. God is irrelevant to me. God is meaningless to my life. I got work to do. I got money to make. I got friends to hang out with. God means nothing to me or very little. Who cares about living with God? There is no God, at least not in my heart. But the psalmist in Psalm 15 is very different. He wants to live with God. He wants to know can I be there? And can the, the community of the righteous be there in the end? He has the, the heart of Psalm 1611, which says, in contrast, 
You reveal to me the path of life. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. God, you are life. I want to be where you are. And so the main goal of this psalm, it's pretty clear because the question is, who can live with God? Here's the main goal. Understand who may commune, commune with, enjoy, and, or who may enjoy, commune with, and live with God in his kingdom. Who gets to live with God in his kingdom? So under, the, the main goal is understand who gets to live with God, who gets to enjoy God, who gets to commune with God in his home. And the answer, I'll give you the answer now, and then we'll, we'll break it down for the rest of our time. There's five characteristics of the person who gets to live in his home. So it's the one who's characterized by righteousness, service, discernment, honesty, and justice. Who gets to live with God? The man or the woman, the boy or the girl, who is characterized by righteousness, service, discernment, honesty, and justice. We'll take these one at a time. Look at verse 2 as we think about righteousness. The one who is characterized by righteousness, the one who is righteous. Look at verse 2. Who gets to live with God? Verse 2, the one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Now, the first part is who lives blamelessly. And that um, blameless, another word is above reproach, if you like the same thing. He's, re he's reproachless. You can't, you can't blame her for anything. You can't tag her with any reproach in their life. They are above reproach. They are blameless. That's like a mature Christian. Do you know any passage in the New Testament that talks about being above reproach? The qualifications or characteristics of who? Of a pastor, elder, overseer, right? And notice here, this is not the qualifications for a pastor being blameless. This is those who get to live with God. This is the expectation for a Christian or a believer, a new covenant Christian or an old covenant believer. Now, maybe a better translation is wholeheartedly, the one who lives wholeheartedly with his whole heart. He's all in with God. That's a summary of the whole thing. You want to know someone who gets to live with God? The one who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. He is wholehearted towards God. That's his reputation. He's blameless because he lives wholeheartedly to God. Notice his activity in verse 2. What does he practice? Righteousness. He doesn't just know righteousness. He doesn't just know the Bible. He doesn't just know what's right. He doesn't just know the Ten Commandments. He practices righteousness. He doesn't merely know it. He doesn't merely say it and talk about it. He doesn't merely preach it. He practices what he preaches. He does what he says he believes. This is what 1 John 3, 7 says, the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Who is righteous? The one who does what is right. He's characterized by righteousness. That's the one who's righteous, 1 John 3, 7. So this person, does, he acts, and not only does he act in a, and do things, he's, he also has biblically informed sincerity. Look at the end of verse 2. This righteousness is characterized by biblically informed sincerity. He acknowledges the truth in his heart. Now, your translation might say, he speaks the truth in his heart or to his heart. He speaks the truth in his heart. In other words, if he acknowledges the truth in his heart, we can acknowledge the truth out loud, but not in our hearts. Does that ever happen to you? That's one of my main jobs as a dad in this season is to see if my children are acknowledging the truth in their hearts when we tell them to do something. So sometimes, even recently, Francis told one of my kids to do something, and then um, I heard the kid answer, and I looked at Francis like, are they, are they resisting? Are they like resisting in their heart? Like, did you sense any resistance? It's just like, no, I don't think so. Okay. Like, be because it's not just enough to say, okay, yes, mom, yes, dad, I'll do it. That's not, okay, God, I know you said that. Okay, I'll do what you say because I know you're telling me to do it. I don't, I don't like it. Not in my heart. I don't acknowledge it as true and good and beautiful in my heart. I just know it's right, so I'm going to do it because I have to do it. That's not this righteous person. He speaks the truth in his heart. He acknowledges the truth in his heart. He loves the truth. It's in his heart. He values it. He believes in it. He lets the truth rule his heart. 
he happily lets the truth guide his heart. And when his heart goes astray, he speaks the truth in his heart. He preaches the truth in his heart. He gospelizes himself to say, PJ, it's not enough to just do it on the outside because you're a Christian and a member and a pastor. You have to know it in your heart. You have to believe it whether people are looking or not. He cares about knowing and trusting and trembling before God, before God's truth in his heart, regardless of what happens in his community. Whatever happens in his relationships, at work, at school, with his financial situation, with his health situation, he doesn't care at the end of the day. He wants the truth in his heart for his own heart's sake with God, not based on any other pressures to please other people. This person practices righteousness and acknowledges truth in his heart. Now, aren't we declared righteous in Christ? I mean, how are you righteous before a holy God? Is it because you have enough righteousness on your own, and if you just do enough right things, God will eventually accept you? Is that how you become a Christian? Yes or no? No. But a lot of people think that. A lot of people think Christianity and religion means get better, fix yourself, just try harder and do better, and then you will become a Christian, and then God will accept you if you're good enough. That is a lie from the devil. But this passage seems to be saying that. It's not saying that, but it seems to be saying that. But what is the truth? God declares us righteous in Christ and not on our own righteousness. Keep your finger here in Psalm 15, but go to Psalm 24. This question is familiar to you more because of Psalm 24, not Psalm 15. Psalm 24 verse 3 says this, who may ascend to the holy mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Very similar question. Now, this gives a different answer from David as well. Who gets to stand in God's presence? Here's the answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. That pretty much sounds the same as Psalm 15. Here's where it's different, though. Look at verse 5. This person will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from who? From himself? From his heart? Righteousness from his discipline? From his own practice? Where does he receive righteousness? From who? From the God of his salvation, such a generation of those who inquire of him, such as the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So who will stand before God? The one who will receive righteousness, not from his own life, but from God. So God gives righteousness to people, to his people. He gives righteousness. Now let me step back from Psalm 15 just for a second. I'm just going to give you another Another major truth of the Bible, here's the gospel, actually. If you're not a Christian, this is the truth of the gospel, and I would need you to pay attention specifically for this minute or so. This is the main message of Christianity in the Bible. God made you. God loves you. God made you to enjoy a relationship with Him and to enjoy Him in your relationships in this world and that you would reflect Him in this world. God made you to know and love and enjoy Him. But we have rebelled against God. We did not want our Creator God to reflect him in this world and enjoy him, we wanted to use God to enjoy other things. Friends, money, health, wealth, status, reputation, accomplishments. We want to use God rather than use things to worship God. We want to use God to worship things. If you build your identity on anything besides the true God of the Bible, that is what sin is. That is idolatry. And that's our problem. And the Bible says we are condemned to hell under God's judgment because we are guilty of sin. And because of that, we are damned. But here's the good news. God sent His Son Jesus into the world. Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life that none of us could live. He died on the cross for our sins, not for His sins because He didn't have any. He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose from the dead so that everyone who repents from their sin and trusts in Jesus, God will credit Christ's righteousness to you, just as He credited Christ's, or He debited Christ's, uh, your sin on Christ, and He punished Christ, He will now reward you if you trust in Jesus Christ. So God gives righteousness to sinners. He credits righteousness to the unrighteous and ungodly. But when He credits you with righteousness, apart from what you do, that's the gospel, you receive that by faith alone, not by your works. But when you receive that from God, that is so powerful that God will, with that grace, give you more grace to transform you to actually practice righteousness. He doesn't just give you half a gift. He gives you a full gift. 
the full credit of righteousness on your account, and then the transforming effect of righteousness in your life. He gives you the Holy Spirit who will live in you, and he will transform you for the rest of your life into eternity. And so what David is saying is if you don't receive this credited righteousness and then the practical righteousness that follows and flows from this credited righteousness, then you're not a Christian. You're not saved. But, but the devil will say, oh, if you don't have this practical righteousness, you need to do more of this to be saved. That's not what the Bible says. Okay, so if you're not a Christian, God is telling you to trust in Jesus, not in your own good works and your own righteousness. Trust in Jesus to save you. Call on Christ to save you and he will save you. Now, if you're discouraged and you're saying, okay, um, man, I'm just not that holy. I'm struggling with sin in my life. If you're discouraged by sin in your life, I want you as well to rest in the righteousness of Christ. God counts you fully righteous in Christ. And that's part of the strategy to grow in Christ, is to rest in the fact that your righteousness is fully secured, credited to you in full in Christ by faith alone. Now, God's declaration of righteousness, like I said, in initial salvation, justification, will lead to progressive salvation or transformation and final salvation, which is glorification. And so God expects you still to be righteous. So that the psalm still stands as it says, who gets to live with God? The one who is righteous, not just credited with righteous, righteousness by Christ, but who actually lives and practices righteousness. That's what 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So in 1 John chapter 3, John expects you to know that the righteous one who's declared righteous also practices righteousness. This is who gets to live with God. This is the blessed one. Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled with righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you, Jesus said. And Jesus says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Christ demands, God demands, a practice of righteousness. He expects that because God is powerful to work it into your life. Daniel was blameless, wasn't he? Wasn't he above reproach? He practiced righteousness when he was pressured, when no one was looking, they told him to eat the king's food. He didn't want to do that because it was idolatrous. And, he, and then even when they outlawed in his land, it's illegal for you to pray to your God for 30 days. Daniel was praying to his God faithfully. His enemies wanted to trap him. The best way to trap him is to, to get him to, he's wholehearted for God, so let's go after his wholeheartedness for God. He's praying every day at his window. So they pass a law. You can't pray to any other God for 30 days. Well, Daniel goes to his window three times a day, next day, after he hears the law and prays again, I'm going to disobey the law because it's calling me to disobey God. He disobeys the law of the land because he is wholehearted for God. And he, he's blameless. He practices righteousness. Even when he confesses sin, he doesn't only confess his own sin as a righteous person. He, he takes on um, culpability and personal responsibility as part of Israel when he says, we have sinned against you. We broke the Israeli covenant. We broke the old Israeli covenant, he says in Daniel 9. We are shamed. We are guilty. And if you look at Daniel's life, he never personally broke it on his own. He was a faithful covenant Israelite. But because he's part of Israel and that, that covenant is made with them as a nation, they were guilty. And he was part of they. So he says, we are guilty. Christians today have a hard time understanding that they are part of a corporate reality, whether it be the church or America. I say, we are guilty of abortion. We are guilty of confusing marriage and gender. Not just they. I'm American. I understand maybe not all of you who are watching online or here are American citizens. I am. And so I'm part of that corporate guilt. I have a responsibility there. Now, personally, I'm not, but corporately I am. And we have to own that. 
Daniel did, and so does the righteous person. So, brothers and sisters, pursue righteousness. Grow in righteousness. Have a holy discontentment that compels you to press toward the goal for the prize promised by God's heavenly call. Press toward the mark, says the King James Version. If you're a child, if you're a child here, children, listen up. It's good to see children here. Joey and James, glad you guys are here. We missed you guys. We're thankful you guys are here this morning. I want to tell you guys something real quick, and then you guys can keep doing your thing. All right, listen to this. Learn to obey your Bible as much as possible, even even when mommy and daddy aren't looking, okay? Don't only obey God just when mommy and daddy are telling you, obey God and obey me, but when mommy and daddy are not looking, you should still obey them. You should still obey God because that's what God calls his people to do. The good news is that God declares us righteous apart from our own works and then gives us practical righteousness in our lives. So we need to understand who may commune with God, who may live with God, and who is it? The one who's characterized first by righteousness, and that's really the big category. These other ones are going to be a little bit shorter, um, except for the third one because we're going to hit a big problem there with despising those rejected. But these other ones are more explaining what it means to be a righteous person. So let's fill it out with these next um, four. So first, you're characterized by righteousness. Secondly, characterized by service. This is the one who serves his neighbor, particularly with his words. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 15. Go back to Psalm 15. The one who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. So he does not slander. What is slandering or tailbearing? Um, let me read a dictionary definition here, a, a Bible dictionary. These words translate in the Old Testament expressions implying secrecy like a whisperer. Speaking behind somebody's back, an evil report, giving out or carrying of slander or the wrong use of the tongue or your feet or your actions. In the New Testament, the the words translate accusation, speaking against somebody or defaming them. All tale-bearing, whether false or not, malicious or foolish, so intentional or unintentional, especially between neighbors or brothers, is condemned and punished by God and causes quarreling. Slander springs from the heart of the natural man, excludes from God's presence, and must be banished from the Christian community, which itself suffers slander. So this person serves his neighbor. He doesn't backbite. He doesn't talk bad about his neighbor. doesn't slander them with his words. How many words less would be spoken on social media, on private emails and messages? private texts? How many less words would be spoken in your homes? Especially even between husband and wife, if you just took out all slander. Just never talking bad about people in an unrighteous way. There'd be a lot less words out there in the world, right? The righteous person serves his neighbor by not slandering. Secondly, here in, the, in this part about service, look at verse 3 again. He does not slander with his tongue. Look at verse 3 again. Who does not harm his friend? He doesn't harm them. He serves with his words and his actions. He doesn't harm or hurt others. He is sensitive. She is sensitive. She is thoughtful. And she seeks to grow in awareness of how even his or her unintentional actions and decisions might actually harm others. They work hard to not harm other people. And when they feel like their conscience is clear and they're not hurting others, they're still open to hearing when people say that they're hurting them. To consider, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I am harming you in a way that I did not intend or I'm not self-conscious of. Can you please help me understand how I might be hurting you? Now, let's be be clear. There is such a thing as emotional blackmail where everyone wants to just say, you're hurting me no matter what, even if it's not true hurt just to control and manipulate people. So I'm not saying that you have to be controlled by everyone's claim that you're hurting them. But the righteous person doesn't just dismiss people without a careful hearing. He does not harm people. She does not harm people with their words intentionally, and they work to make sure they're not doing it unintentionally. Continuing in verse 3, this righteous person who serves does not discredit his neighbor. He doesn't attack people with illogical attacks and mere rhetoric. He doesn't merely insult people so that people would stop listening to others. That happens a lot. I mean, just there's a presidential campaign going on, right? You're going to hear from both sides. People trying to discredit the the, the candidate of the other, perhaps. I'm not sure. I'm not following what they're saying. I could assume that one would be certainly um, 
discrediting the other. I don't know. I'm not following lately. But you'll see that. You see that a lot in our culture. Where um, Do you guys know what ad hominem, what an ad hominem is? That fall- fallacy of attacking the person rather, rather than the argument? So they make a claim, and they say, you know, um, they, they would say something like, um, you know, the, the pandemic is, is worse now than it was six months ago or four months ago. And someone might say, well, you're ugly. So I don't know if that's true. What? Like, what does me be, like, why are you, first of all, why are you saying I'm ugly? And why does, what does that have to do with what my, my statement is? That's an ad hominem attack. You're, you're trying to discredit somebody not on the basis of their argument, but just because you want to discredit them. That's what an unrighteous person does. Or a genetic fallacy. That, hap- that happens all over the place where, oh, well, this idea comes from this, or it's kind of loosely tied to this, and because it, comes, it has the same genes as this root idea, therefore it has to be wrong. And so just clearly discrediting, you just start labeling things. Socialism, communism, capitalism, um, you know, um, racism, whatever. You just, just kind of tie things together and just put a quick label on it and then be done with it. Just discredit them. Righteous person doesn't do that. He serves with his words in all these things. With no slander, no discrediting, no harm, he uses his words and his actions to serve people. He speaks only what is true, what is edifying and necessary to help people know God and enjoy their life in God in their relationships with other people and the situations they find themselves in. So you need to know who gets to live with God, the one characterized by righteousness, secondly, the one characterized by service with their words, and thirdly, the one characterized by discernment. Number three, discernment. Look at uh, at, uh, Psalm 15, verse 4, at least the first two lines here. This person who has discernment, this is the one who looks at all people the way God looks at people. That's the way I'm summarizing it, okay? They're able to discern. You know what I would use? Another word. It's probably a bad word in our culture just because um, words, again, you could use labels to discredit. Don't do that, by the way. Words are not true or false by themselves. It depends on what, how they're used. So, for example, the word tolerance True or false? Tolerance. How do I know? If it, like, a word is just a word. Until you use it in a sentence, we could know if it's true or false. So here's another word. Discrimination. Good or bad? Anyone? The, the culture would say bad, right? Now, I hope that you would um, want me to discriminate who my wife is and who my wife isn't. And not, treat, not to treat all women without discrimination. Be like, oh yeah, I'm not going to discriminate who my wife is and who my wife isn't. I'm going to treat all women equally and make no discrimination. We used, to use, we used to be able to use gender for discrimination and say, that's not bad, bathrooms, you know, but nowadays you can't even use that as an example. But we use discrimination all the time. It's not bad. It, it depends on what you're, the basis on what you're discriminating, right? So you discriminate between eating food that's edible and food that's not edible. You're discriminating. You're discerning. You're judging what is edible and what is not edible. And so the righteous person has good discernment, makes good discrimination, good judgment calls. What What do I mean by this? This is the one who looks at all people the way God looks at that person. And he can discriminate between people and look at the way God looks at each people as God discriminates or discerns between people. So there's two types of people in verse 4. Who are the two types of people? You guys tell me, looking at verse 4. Who are the two types of people? Those who what? Or the one, the one who? Uh, that's, that, that's the righteous person. No, the one who despises and the one who honors is the righteous person. But what is he, who is he looking at? Two types of people. The what? The one who is rejected by the Lord. That's one group of people. And then, the one who what? Fears the Lord. There are two types of people in this room. There are two types of people in this world. The one who is rejected by the Lord and the one who fears the Lord. And the righteous person discerns between the two. And they look at them the way God looks at them. And if they look at them the way God looks at them, and if they feel towards them the way God feels towards them, then what do they do? This righteous one despises the one who rejects the Lord, and this righteous one honors those who what? Fear the Lord. So let's just take those one at a time. Honoring the accepted, 
despising the rejected. Let's look at honoring the accepted first. He loves, the righteous person loves the righteous people. He loves the righteous community. She loves the covenant community. And what do these righteous people do? They outdo one another in showing honor. That's what it says in Romans 12. They are not impressed by the things of this world. They're not impressed by the things the world is impressed by or even what evangelical Christian culture is impressed by. They recognize true greatness. What is true greatness according to Jesus? The one who serves, right? The one who serves, the one who who takes off his outer tunic and grabs a towel and washes the feet of his disciples. That is true greatness. And Christians, righteous people, recognize true greatness. It's not how well you can preach a sermon necessarily. It's not how many followers you have online or how much money you make or how many degrees you hold or how many friends you have or how many people you can influence. That is not impressive to the righteous person. They don't care about that. It doesn't impress them. They don't, you don't find honor from them for that. They honor those who what? Well, serve there, but serve in our point, but in this text, what is it, Peter? Those who fear the Lord. That's what they care about most. Does this person love the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do they walk with wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Those are the people they love and honor and uphold on a pedestal. They outdo each other in showing honor. So that's one thing. So they discern who's a true Christian and they honor them. And by the way, that means you honor every Christian, even those who are not mature Christians. And let me just give you one thing that helps me honor Christians that I could be maybe annoyed by or irritated by in my, in my impatience and self-righteous arrogance. John the Baptist, or Jesus said that everyone, the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. You guys remember that? So whenever I have a problem trying to honor another Christian, I just say, you know what? Peter Jung is greater than John the Baptist. If, I, if, I, if I'm going to look down on Peter Jung, could I look down on John the Baptist? No. So why would I look down on another Christian? can't do it. And that's what the righteous person needs to do. He honors those who fear the Lord, even the least in the kingdom. Now, here's the hard one, and this is probably going to take five minutes at least or more. We've got to explain this one. He despises the rejected. Despises the rejected? Are we to despise people? Yes or no? Wow. And you guys are Christians? Wait, did I just hear that right? Did some Christians here just say we are to despise other people? Is that what you guys believe? Are you supposed to hate others? What's the difference between despise and hate? I mean, maybe there's a difference. I, how are we supposed to despise others? Okay, can you despise people sinfully, yes or no? Can you despise people in a way that's not sinful? I mean, maybe that's what the righteous person is doing here, right? Um, so some people say, well, what does this mean? How do you despise or hate somebody? And I'm using those synonymously here. What, what, you know, how, how do you do this? Some people say, well, it just means you, you put the Christians on a pedestal. You, you, those who fear the Lord, you put them on a pedestal. And those who are not Christian, you just, don't, you just don't give them the credit that the world gives. And that's despising them. In a sense, that could be despising. I almost went there. That's a common answer. Because God says, why are you despising me? When, when the old covenant saints are saying, I'm not despising you. I'm not even paying attention to you. And God's like, exactly. That's what despising the Lord is. You're not paying attention to me. So maybe it's just not paying attention to people. I think that's too weak, though. That seems, too, that seems like an easy cop-out. Why? Because I, okay, this is rooted in the doctrine of the hatred of God. Do you know that God hates as well as loves? Look at Psalm 5.5. Let me just take you to a few Psalms here. Psalm 5 and then Psalm 139. Psalm 5.5 says this. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. And we could go to Psalm 11. Psalm 11 says in verse um, 5, the Lord hates the wicked. Now go to Psalm 139. That's God. And we say, well, God could hate and, and still do it righteously because God's God. He never messes up. But are we supposed to hate and despise? Psalm 139, verse 19. This is David speaking again as an example to believers. Psalm 139, 19. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. 
who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? And then verse 22, you can't get away from it. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. How do you, what do I do with that? What do we, what do, you, what do, we do with this? I hate them with extreme hatred. That's, that sounds a little bit more than indifference, right? Just a little bit more. I feel like I, I can't just be like, well, you just don't pay attention to them. So hatred here is connected. Here's, here's my key. Hatred is connected with God's wrath. Since God's wrath is not towards sin in general, but sinners who commit the sin, if God's wrath terminates on the person, there cannot be wrath without some element of hatred. There is no, God is not un, unemotional, uninvested, stoic, and apathetic towards sinners and towards sin. Does God care about sin and righteousness? Does God care about his glory? Yes, he does. And so when God's glory is trampled on in sin by sinners, if God was apathetic and didn't have any passion, then God would be indifferent and there would be no hatred. Maybe he could do wrath just as a judge who is not taking anything personal. For God, everything is personal because every sin is against God personally. It's a personal violation of God himself. Okay, so here's the key. Wrath has an element of hatred in it. So God can hate the sin and pour out his anger and hate toward the person under judgment for the sin that in, his, for in God's righteousness. In fact, John 3.36 says, the wrath of God already remains on those who don't believe. Already. Not in the future, but now. So you could say if God's wrath remains on those who don't believe, there's a sense in which God righteously hates those his wrath is on who still don't believe. Now, this doctrine and train of thought is rightfully less emphasized in the Bible. So I don't want to emphasize it. You know, we don't want to be like the church that's known for teaching the hatred of God. Now, it's in the Bible, so we need to teach it. But we don't need to emphasize it if the Bible doesn't emphasize it. We just need to teach it faithfully when it's in the text, okay? It's a smaller doctrine. It's not the big doctrine. We fly the banner, the big flag of the love of God. But we don't, we don't throw away the, the, little, the little banner of the hatred of God because you can't understand the love of God without the hatred of God. You got to take all of the Bible together. So I want us to realize this is a minor teaching, but it is a teaching, and we must not duck it or hide it. But you need to understand the hatred of God in the larger context of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God loves the world. He gives his son for the world. 1 Timothy 2.4, he wants everyone to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, he desires all to come to repentance. God loves the world. He gives the gospel offer to the world. And then not only that, Jesus tells us, you have heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Serve them. Give them, give them water, it says in Romans 12. Do good. Feed your enemies. So even when we're talking about hating those who are rejected by God, that has to be the smaller teaching in the bigger context of loving your enemies. So, you, so God loves and hates those who are rejected by him. Yes? And now Christians are called to love and hate those who are rejected by God. God hates the sinner and loves the sinner. God calls us to do the same in holiness and righteousness. Now remember, wrath is not empty of holy passion and hatred. It's filled, it's filled with, it's filled, like God's wrath is filled with hate out of his love for his glory and for his people's good. That's where God's hate comes from. You hate the things that attack the, the things that you love, right? If I love my children and somebody attacks them violently period, for a long period of time, and I'm like, oh, I don't care, no big deal, you know, would that be okay? If, if it was no big deal to me, if it, if it was no big deal to me when people attack those I love, then you'd say, PJ, you don't really love them that much because you're just... You're not invested in that. So, so God's hatred comes from his love for his glory and for his people and even for the lost who spurn his, um, his offer of love. Now, I need to take this one step further. If God's wrath always contains God's righteous hatred, not unrighteous, arbitrary hatred, but righteous hatred, when Christ, does God still, does God still hate us when you become a Christian? Does God hate Christians in any sense? 
No, the answer is no. He doesn't because there's no wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath on you. And if hatred is part of the wrath, there's no wrath on those in Christ Jesus. But why is there no hatred on you anymore? Because when Christ died on the cross, he bore the wrath of God. And in bearing the wrath of God, the righteous hatred of God that is inherent in that wrath was borne by Christ. He bore the judgment you deserve. He took the righteous, holy hatred that was aimed at you rightfully on Himself when He hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He hung in darkness under the wrath and hatred of God for His people so that God would never hate you and so that you would never look at a Christian and despise them from the least to the greatest because of Christ in them, right? It's not about them. It's about Christ in them. And so the righteous person honors those who fear the Lord and despises those rejected by the Lord. And it's, this rejection is or this despising is centered on God, it's hard for us to grasp this because we're so self-centered and we're so human-centered and we're so God-marginalizing. We don't put God in the center. We put God off from the center. So this stuff sounds really weird to us. But when you put God in His rightful place, in the center, as exalted, and you make everything, all passions and love and hate revolve around God and His goodness and beauty and majesty and truth, then things start to make more sense. All right? So here's the application, and it's hard, but I, I need to take time. I want you to make sure if I'm going to teach on this, you have to apply it correctly because you could easily sin by despising people and just quote this verse, and you could be sinning in trying to obey this verse. You need to despise the rejected by focusing on sin and God's wrath, hating them for God's glory and sake, and hating them in righteousness while even more so when you're particularly related to them, while also at the same time loving them, praying for them, blessing them, serving them, mourning for them, longing for their salvation, and resting in God's ultimate plan of whether they will finally be saved or not. Do you guys see how those two things go together? You need to see God in His glory. You need to love what God loves and hate what God's, God hates the way He does it. This whole description of Psalm 15 is a description of the godly who live and act like God. But you need to do it with overwhelming love. So if you're not a Christian, sorry for that. I just needed to, to, we need to explain the Bible. If you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this. As Christians, we don't get to pick and choose from the Bible what we believe. We believe this is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word that can never fail you. And we take all of it and believe all of it. We don't believe it contradicts itself. But sometimes you have to do hard theological work like I did for the last 10 minutes just to sort of understand and grasp all that the Bible says. So if you're not a Christian, let me tell you this. God hates your sin and God will judge you in his wrath and hatred. But, but hear this. God loves you even more in the sense that, in this sense, that he has brought you here or here on Zoom or if you're watching this later on video, God is bringing you here to listen to his words because he loves you and he wants to save you. He wants to remove his wrath from you and his hatred if you will take his son, Jesus Christ, whom he's offering to you today, if you'll repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. As long as you live, that offer stands. We just don't know how long we'll live. All right, so we need to know who gets to live with God, one who's characterized by righteousness, service, discernment. Let's go quickly with these last two. So righteousness, service, discernment or discriminating between those who fear God and those who, who are rejected by God. Fourth characteristic is honesty. The one who keeps his word no matter what. Look at verse four. Who keeps his word whatever the cost. He keeps his own word even if it hurts him. Some translations say he, he swears to his own hurt or to his own pain. He keeps his word even if it costs him. Now I was personally convicted by this this verse, this phrase, this week, because I was convicted in the fact that God's word is living and active, and I re realized I actually broke my word towards my professor regarding my um, schoolwork because he gave me an extension on a paper that I have yet to turn in. 
and I asked for a deadline, and I broke that deadline, and so I sent him an email, and I'm going to have to call him on Monday, but I sent him an email this week saying, um, I have to confess my sin, I have to ask for forgiveness, and I have to be willing to accept whatever consequences this means for me. And whatever I need to do to make it right, let me make it right, and whatever I can't do, I will just accept the consequences without, com- without sinful complaining because it's my fault. I did not keep my word. If we don't keep our words, we, have to, we can't complain about the consequences of breaking our word. We need to keep our word even if it hurts us. We need to be people of honesty and faithfulness. The reason why we need to swear and take an oath um, you know, in court and things is because people are so prone to lie, right? But we need to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth as Christians. Now, sometimes we, we actually say things that get us caught in an impossible situation. So, again, reading Psalm 15 this week, I double booked on Friday. I booked a lunch with a friend, a pastor friend in the area, and I had a Bible study with some members waiting for me on Zoom to do a Bible study. Well, I can't keep my word of both, um, so I had to ask one of them, I asked my friend if I could get out from my commitment and if we could reschedule, which he was gracious to, to forgive and to, to reschedule with me. But the point here is that the righteous person takes their word seriously. It's not a small deal to them when they don't keep their word. You have to take it seriously. You have to repent. If you break your word, you have to keep it even if it hurts you. For the righteous person, their, their, greatest, pain is not, um, their greatest pain is not getting caught that they lied. Their greatest pain is dishonoring God by deceiving others, by not trusting God with the difficulties that are, are supposed to come their way, and by evading telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Didn't Jesus swear to his own pain and keep his word at whatever cost, even the cost of the cross itself? Praise God that Christ and the Father is even honest. God promised he'd save sinners. And so when Christ asked for another way, God said, I can't. Nope, there's no other way. We'll keep our word even to our own cost, even to our own hurt. So the righteous person is characterized by righteousness, service, discernment, honesty, and lastly, justice. Look at verse 5. Who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. So he doesn't lend his silver at interest. He doesn't take advantage of a brother or sister or neighbor in need. Why does someone need to borrow money? Because they, they are in a financial need, right? That's why people borrow money. So if people need to borrow money from the righteous person, this righteous person doesn't say, ha, this person is desperate. He needs money. Let me charge him. I can actually charge him some extra interest here or interest because he's in a desperate position. He's, in a, he's stuck. I could actually take advantage of his stuckness by charging him interest. And the righteous person doesn't do it. He doesn't take advantage of the vulnerable. The second part or take a bribe against the innocent. She doesn't oppress the innocent for the sake of financial gain. If she's in a position of power as a judge, as an officer, if they're in a position of power, they don't say, well, I'll take a bribe. I'll take your money for financial gain against the innocent and oppress them. Exodus 22 says, if you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. Leviticus 25, 35 to 37, if your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as an alien or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. You're supposed to support him. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. It's not about financial gain. This is about mercy and justice. It's about justice because God commands it. If God commands it, it's right or wrong. That's a righteousness issue. That's a justice issue. It's a mercy issue because it's your own private property, and you're doing it from your own wealth. It's mercy and justice. It's justice and mercy in different senses, but they're both real, and they're both there. The the person who's righteous, the person who's just, the person who's merciful and won't take advantage of others, this person is content in God and cannot be bought by money. How many of you know Nate, the, the famous theologian Ted DiBiase? Anyone know who Ted DiBiase is? The million-dollar man. He was a wrestler for WWF in the 80s and early 90s. He's one of the villains in WWF, World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about? Ted DiBiase, one of his famous theological tenets was, everyone has a price. Everyone has a price. 
And he would just buy people and bribe people. And, you know, I used to believe wrestling was real, and he was really buying people. And, man, dude, he was just a terrible person. But, but that philosophy is true in this world in many ways, right? I mean, to some degree, a lot of people have a price, right? That's why they say, would you do this for a million dollars? What about $2 million? What about three million? You know, and just keep raising the price in this hypothetical because we love money. And money is a good thing in a sense. It's a good tool. It's not a good master. It's a terrible master. But it's a good tool. And we love money. And so, so, um, so everyone has a price, according to Ted DiBiase. But not everyone has a price. Not the righteous person. He won't take a bribe. He won't take interest. Some people don't have a price. Some people are so secure in God and his provisions for them and God and God's goodness to them that they don't need money for their joy and satisfaction. And when you find someone who can't be bought, you found a righteous person who can actually be just because money doesn't drive them. If you're not a Christian, I already said this, money is a terrible master. If you live for money... It will leave you empty and broke and condemned before God Almighty. You say, it won't leave me broke. What if I die rich? Yeah, but when you die, you're broke. You don't get to take it with you when you die. And you'll, be end, you'll end up condemned before God. Because Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You either serve Jesus or you serve money. But you can't serve both. So if you're not a Christian, let me just summarize all five of these characteristics. So what are the five characteristics here? Um, one who is characterized by righteousness, service, discernment, honesty, and justice. If you're not a Christian, let me just tell you this. You can't do these on your own. God has to give you this, but God can change you. God can change you. If you'll give your life to Jesus and turn from your sins, Jesus will change you. He is powerful to do that. He promises to do that in the new covenant. He'll give you a new heart. He'll put his spirit within you. He'll write his law on your heart and he'll change you. If you're a Christian who's discouraged because you keep stumbling in sin, just know this, God is working in you now if you're a Christian. You need to keep seeking the Lord. You might not feel like you have this overwhelming power to kill sin in your life, but you do. You do have this infinite, almighty God who is empowering you to kill sin. You can do it. He can do it in you. If you're a doubting Christian, maybe I'm not really a Christian, PJ. I read Psalm 15. I'm not righteous. I don't enjoy God. I'm not serving others with my words. I slander people. I'm not discerning. I'm not honest. I'm not just. If you're a doubting Christian, let me tell you this. Maybe you should doubt. Don't get rid of your doubt so fast. How do you get rid of doubt? By repenting from your sin and trusting in Jesus. If you've made a deal with some sins in your life that you just refuse to repent of, you should doubt your salvation. That's worth doubting. Why am I more committed to my sin than God in repentance? If that's you and you're hiding in your sin, you ought to doubt. But I have good news for you. You don't need to doubt. If you'll really repent, come to the light. Stop hiding in the darkness as a Christian, and God will forgive you, cleanse you, and empower you. And He'll help give a church family around you to help you grow. Church family, what does this mean for us? Who can commune with God in our community? What should our screening questions be before we take someone in as a member? Have you had a fever in the last 14 days? That's not our questions, right? These are good membership questions, right? When we take in a new member, we say, one of the questions, when we have a congregational meeting, what do we say? We want you to ask questions. Do we think this person's really a Christian? If they have unrepentant sin in their lives, we might raise our hand and say, you know what? I don't think we should take this person in as a member, not because we're holier than other people, but because this person has sin in their life and they refuse to repent of it. That doesn't show evidence of, of true salvation, in other words, we expect every Christian, baby Christian to the most mature Christian, we expect every Christian to be repentant in principle, right? Right? We expect that of Christians. So church family, expect that of each other. Don't lower your standard and expect, oh, of course we sin, so of course we're going to have members who are unrepentant for long periods of time. That's not normal. That's not normal Christianity. That's fake Christianity and weak Christianity, and unhealthy Christianity. Expect your fellow members to be righteous, to be discerning, to be serving, to be guarding their words, to be free from the love of money, to be just, to be honest. Expect that from each other. If you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, PJ, this is why I would never be a Christian, because what you said there, 
I know a bunch of Christians who don't do that. I know a bunch of hypocritical Christians. Have you ever seen a Christian who's hypocritical? That's a, that's a devastating reason. That's a powerful reason to not be a Christian. I know Christians who are hypocrites. If, you, if that's where you're at, I get it. But let me just tell you a few things. Number one, there are fake Christians, okay? Number two, God knows that there are fake Christians and hypocritical Christians, and God warns against it, even as I'm warning against it in this sermon right now. Thirdly, God will judge hypocrites. They might get away from other Christians. They might get away from Bethany Baptist Church. They might get away from non-Christians and might fly under the radar, but they will not fly under God's radar. So if, if you're saying, you know what, I can't be a Christian because of hypocrites, well, God will judge them. And I would say this to you, my final plea to you if you're not a Christian, don't reject Jesus because Christians are hypocrites. The answer is not to reject Christianity, it's to go deeper into true Christianity because you might be seeing a fake picture of Christianity. Or you might be seeing a real Christian who struggles with sins. Because let's be honest, who isn't a hypocrite at some time in their life? It's not, you don't have to be a Christian to be a hypocrite, right? Everyone is hypocritical sometimes. No one is perfectly righteous. No one is consistently righteous in service, in discernment, in honesty, and in justice. No one is perfect in, the, in this. Not you, not me, no, not one. No one. Well, just one. Jesus Christ was righteous. Jesus Christ was blameless. Jesus Christ was wholehearted. Jesus Christ practiced righteousness. Jesus spoke the truth in his heart and life. Jesus spoke well of everyone. Jesus never slandered anyone or discredited his neighbor. He served his neighbor. He didn't harm anyone intentionally or unintentionally. Jesus never, um, oh, never despised and he, he never um, honored the despised and rejected those who feared the Lord. He always honored those who feared the Lord, and he, he truly righteously despised the rejected. Jesus always kept his word. Jesus always upheld perfect justice. He was never bought by the love of money. He was never caught in the love of money. Jesus may dwell in God's tent. Jesus can live on God's holy mountain. But you know what? Jesus left God's dwelling place. He left heaven and came to earth he was in God's holy presence, the Father's holy presence. He came to earth to become a servant and then to die on the cross for sinners. And he was abandoned by God. He was put outside of Jerusalem, outside of the gate. He was cursed by God. He was rejected by God. The only one who gets to live in his holy tent, the only one who gets to live in his holy mountain is the one who's rejected and cast off the mountain, cut off from the tent as he was condemned for those three to six hours, from hours three to hour six on the cross, from about noon to 3 p.m., half of the time he was hanging on the cross, he was condemned by God and cut off from the land of the living so that you may now live with God in his holy temple, in his holy mountain, in his holy tent. And what's the good news of all this? If this is you, here's the good news, the very last part of verse 5. The one who does these things not only will live in God's tent, they'll never be what? They'll never be shaken. You, are, you will never be shaken. You are a person of integrity, and you are secure in God. You can't be bought. You can't be manipulated. You can't be peer pressured. You can't be intimidated. You can't be derailed into gossip. You can't be deceived in your head, in your heart, in your hands. You don't love your life to the point of death, Christian. You think the truth in love. You speak the truth in love, you act the truth in love, you, re you repent before the truth in love, you serve this world and your neighbors with the truth in love. So here's my call to you, brothers and sisters. Be who you are. You are righteous. You are a saint. Be who God made you to be. Take your gospel identity seriously. Isn't it right here? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit indwells, builds, and leads you, you are the temple of God. You are sent to expand and fill the earth with God's presence and blessing by showing and sharing Jesus with others. That's who you are. So be who you are. Live out who God made you to be, Christian. If you do, you can know that you're saved. You can experience your salvation daily as you grow. And you will live with God forever on the new earth when Jesus returns. And right now, in this moment and for the rest of eternity, Whatever comes your way, you will never, you will never be shaken. You can't be shaken. Not in Christ. You'll never be shaken. Let's pray.
Lord, we look for security in all kinds of places. Personally, I wish I could know now from you that I would never get cancer or a sickness like that that would kill me. I'd love to find security in a promise like that. But you tell us here that we don't have to know that to never be shaken. We just have to know you and trust you and let you work righteousness into our lives. Lord, you began a good work in us. We pray that you'll complete it. We pray that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are the one who works in us. You're the one who empowers us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Help us to know that we are saved and help us to grow in being who you called us and made us to be in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.